Welcome back, friends, to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for listening. Today, I want to talk about the shadow. So the title is of this podcast is A Little Podcast on the Shadow. And some of you might recognize, if you're fans of Robert Bly, that that's an allusion to his book, one of his books called A Little Book on the Human Shadow, which is excellent. I'll actually have some recommendations at the very end of this podcast. So hang, you can hang out for those. And um, I don't know, there's something about the title that I think is important. It fits with really my whole intention for this podcast, period. The podcast is called Hints and Guesses, and that's exactly what I mean. That's a line from T.S. Eliot. He actually says, hints followed by guesses. And I'm not intending to make a definitive podcast on anything like the Enneagram or biblical myths or psycho-spiritual stuff. Um, I'm hoping to contribute to the great conversation and invite you to deepen your own uh, relationship with the great conversation around meaning and depth and beauty and art and love and death and sex and um, nature, the, the human soul. And why? Because we live in such a paper-thin culture. We know that. Everything from the news to pop culture, and I'm not against any of these things, is a very um, thin sheet of ice. And meaning and beauty and depth, I don't know, they come along, they crack the ice, and we find ourselves swimming in, in deeper, more frigid waters. And I guess that's in part what I'm inviting you all into with a podcast called Hints and Guesses. Let's make a few hints and guesses about God and meaning and mortality. <laughs> and therefore, the title of today's episode, A Little Podcast on the Shadow. I'm not trying to define or make the definitive uh, statements about the human shadow. And, and don't think for a second, just because you listen to this, you're going to know exactly what the shadow is, or even worse, know how to identify your shadow in some sort of definitive way and say, I've checked that area of um, spiritual growth off my list. It doesn't seem to work that way. In fact, Robert Bly, speaking of Robert Bly, says, we spend the first 25 years of our life stuffing a whole bunch of stuff into a long black bag that we drag behind us. And if we're lucky, we spend the rest of our life taking it out bit by bit. And sometimes it goes right back into the black bag. It's an ongoing process of growth and evolution and change to begin to drag out of that bag stuff we need if we're going to grow up and if we're going to grow into the full self that we can grow into, something like that. So that's what this podcast is about. And I invite you into a few hints and guesses about the human shadow. And I think it's important. I'm going to tell you why it's important in, in a few minutes. So a little preliminary stuff. Uh, you can go to my website, kendobson.com. I've got a couple of new programs. I have a, a seven-month in-depth soul-oriented uh, course uh, for those who live in West Michigan. This is my third year doing, doing a program like this that goes from fall to uh, spring. 
And it's really a, a, a course about Descent to Soul. And last year, I offered my first online version of that. So I'm doing that again. So I have two courses right now. One is an in-person course for those who live in West Michigan. It's a small group. And also an online version of that for those who live anywhere. Last year, I had a, a couple people from Germany. I did a shorter version this summer. I had uh, one from England and one from New Zealand, so don't feel like uh, proximity to West Michigan is needed for the second course. Anyway, the details and the cost, all that stuff is on my website. And I also have a few spots open for my January Israel trip. I offer an Israel trip, it depends, once a year maybe, Israel-Palestine, and mine are rooted in the ancient tradition of pilgrimage. It's a spiritual adventure, and along the way we talk about Bible, myths, religion, story, um, questions, archaeology, um, and of course politics, which you can't you can't avoid. And it's it's uh, it's a true wander in that sense. We are journeying together. Of course, I have an itinerary. I've done this for like seventeen years, and I keep changing my itinerary always. Um, but it's a wander in the sense of we don't know exactly what we're going to discover and we we hope to to walk with open hearts and open minds and probably now more than ever do we need to face the great tradition the the judeo-christian tradition and how it came to be and and to wonder what gifts it still has to offer um and also to let ourselves be challenged by this part of the world and and what is going on from a religious point of view now in the 21st century? These things, I think, need to be faced. And that's what, in part, I hope my pilgrimage makes a contribution toward. It's also a hint and a guess, I might add. I might, I'm thinking, by the way, of bringing my, some of my podcast equipment. I'll have to borrow another mic from a friend. But a lot of people, um, not a lot, but a few people say, why do you, why do you go there? And are you pro-Palestinian or pro Israel, and I usually say something like yes, and it's a bit hard for me to even explain my own uh, political persuasions. There's a saying in Israel that um, if you come to Israel for a week, you'll write a book. If you come for a month, you'll write an article. If you stay any longer, you won't know what to say. And because I lived there and also continue to go there, it's a bit difficult. And um, even for me to probe my own uh, convictions. And maybe that's not even all that important. I think, um, what does Yeats say? Um, the, the, the best are, the best are, um, well, all I can think of is the worst are full of passionate intensity. And that's what I feel about most Israel politics stuff coming from the West, that the worst are are full of passion and intensity, so convinced that their side, even though they know very little about it, is right and has the right to be there and so forth and so on. The best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passion and intensity. That's the line from, from Yeats. What a poem, God. Um, anyway, so I thought about bringing my podcast equipment. I'll interview some of my friends that are 
you know, I don't know, on both sides or in the complex middle. That's where a lot of my friends are. They're in the complex middle. They're they're Christians, many of them, um, but they've been there long enough or grew up there that they have a very nuanced uh, perspective. So anyway, I'm putting that out there. Look for that. Hopefully I'll do that if it all works out. Um, make a few podcasts while I'm there. So anyway, that was kind of a long advertisement. Check out my website and come with me to Israel. There are spots. You can fly from anywhere in the world. You can make your own flight arrangements. Um, if need be, the main group, uh, at least if, uh, well, it's, it's a small group, is coming from Seattle. So if you live in that area, I already have some tickets reserved. So that's that. Okay, to the shadow. Well... I think I'd like to start with a definition. And this is a definition that we use at Animus Valley Institute, where I'm in their guide training program. This is Bill Plotkin's place, which I've mentioned before. You can check him out online. And when, when we host um, practices or conversation about the shadow, we usually say something like this, that the shadow is what we don't know about ourselves. That's the simplest most straightforward way of putting it. The shadow is what we don't know about ourselves. And then, and then cleverly, we like to add, and if accused, it would flatly deny. So it's not only what we don't know about ourselves, but if someone were to say or accuse us of this particular quality, we would say with conviction and belief and be 100% convinced that's not me. We would deny it. And I don't mean denial in, in, a, in kind of the way people use it now, where people denial sometimes passes as, I don't want to admit things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying denial in the most genuine sense, deny that it exists. This is not a quality I have. This is not what I'm like. And we're convinced in that and couldn't be talked out of it even with... Um, sort of the best pressure, we would be convinced. That's what the shadow is. And there might be other ways of putting it, but I think that's the simplest, which raises a question. What do you mean there are elements of who I am that I know nothing about? That's what makes the shadow scary. That's why it's in the shadow. It's frightening to us. It's actually it's a frightening concept, period, that... I don't know myself very well. By the way, this is what I think is like growing up 101. This is the beginning of the second half of life. It's when all the maps and programs and tests you ever took stop working, or at least stop working very well, and you start wondering, wait a minute, maybe there's some part or parts of myself I know nothing about. And that is totally freaky from the ego's point of view or from the persona's point of view. Persona means mask, and we all wear masks of various kinds. And most of us, me included, don't even realize that we're wearing a mask. It's that it's that nicely fitted onto the face. It's like that Jim Carrey uh, movie, The Mask. Like when he puts the mask on, it sort of like... Um, perfectly molds into his face and then he be becomes energetically this persona. That's a little like our own personas and we don't realize we're wearing it. We can't, we don't see that we're seeing through a lens uh, until it, that, that gets cracked in some way. 
and usually through disappointment, failure, or bits of the shadow leak out sideways, and we end up doing something, saying something, participating in something, ruining something, or falling in love with something that totally breaks our ego and our persona and the masks that we've been wearing. And, and we, we say something like, I don't know where this is coming from. This is not me. Now you're getting at least some clues that the shadow is coming out of hiding. At least that's one way of putting it. Okay, so point number two. Where did it come from? How can it be that there are elements of, of who we are that we know nothing about? Well, most depth psychologists say that the shadow, or the shadows, you could say, is formed in early childhood when parts of who we are begin to exhibit themselves. It could be some talent. It could be some way of being in the world. It could even be a kind of emotional state. And I'll give you some examples like exuberance or creativity or um, anger even. And they begin to because we're complex, sophisticated human beings, and we have all these things, but they begin to surface and the, our, our family milieu and our cultural milieu finds them unacceptable for one reason or another. But before we're very psychologically developed, we experience that as, um, as a lack of safety. That's the way the psyche experiences it. It's unsafe for me to be X. None of this happens consciously, and I want to say that. What I'm describing, you have no say in. This happens to everybody. It happens in early childhood. And so those elements of who we are, the unsavory bits, the instinctual bits, um, we might even say the nastier bits or even the, uh, the opposite of the nasty bits, the wildly successful and amazing, successful is probably the wrong word, but amazingly uh, talented even elements of who we are, that's unsafe to, to come out. It might make your parents feel threatened or your teachers or caregivers or whatever. They feel threatened by this um, way of being coming forth in the world. So it goes underground. It goes into the shadow. And what's amazing about it is that you do not know it's there. And the, the question of why does this happen is very simple. It happens so that we can remain safe. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with us that we have a shadow or that, that the shadow mechanism, if that's such a, a phrase, is automatically um, activated. It keeps us safe. And especially when we're psychologically vulnerable and even physically vulnerable as kids, as all kids are. So where else is this stuff going to go except underground? And it becomes, quote, the shadow when in adulthood we it remains undisclosed um, and remains hidden in the closet, so to speak. And actually, that's a pretty good metaphor for the closet, coming out of the closet. What's interesting about some of my own friends um, in the LGBTQ community who have come out of the closet it's interesting to me, everybody's story is wildly unique, but sometimes you'll hear a story where 
someone will come to into a greater sense of their own uh, sexuality late in life, and they will say something like, I didn't know it was there. And those of us who um, haven't gone through that might wonder, could that really, how can you not know? How can you not know until you're 28 or 35 or 45? That doesn't make any sense. Now, that's not everybody's story, of course, because some people know right away and they're just trying to bury it. What I'm describing is actually more like shadow. You simply do not know it's there. And then one day, or probably not instantaneously, something cracks and the persona, the mask, the ego is fractured um, enough where bits of that shadow begin to leak out. And at first, usually people absolutely freak out what the hell is happening to me and try to suppress it. I wish it would just go back in and sometimes it can, or it tends to gain a foothold and the invitation is to turn toward it. What is this that's happening in me that I didn't know was there? So anyway, that's a um, sort of a cultural example. So again, it's what we don't know about ourselves. How did it get formed? Well, it kept us safe. So there was something about our natural way of being, our instinctual way of being in the world that was unsafe and unsafe culturally or in our family. And by the way, nothing wrong with this. Of course, of course. And it, so into the shadow, it goes. I think thirdly, I, I might like to say, why work with it? I mean, after all, this is not fun you know, going on a, if you even can, shadow hunting um, or taking bites of the shadow, as Robert Bly says, or beginning to pull a few things out of the long black bag is not fun. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I can't wait. It's actually the opposite. You, you know it's the opposite. If it's terrifying, it feels like your life is going to fall apart. You feel like you don't know who you are anymore. And you're afraid that if more of this comes forth, everything that I have uh, would, everything in my so-called normal life is going to unravel. Yeah, now you're getting pretty close. So the question is, why work with it? Well, here's, here's something to know. You don't have to. Don't. If you're that terrified or you're not that well-resourced, or you have a whole bunch of other issues lurking that are up front, not only um, the ones you don't know anything about, uh, work with those. You don't have to. Um, and I'm thinking now of Adrian Rich's amazing poem called it, It's Only a Door, um, something like that. The, the final line is, the door makes no promises. It's only a door. So you can either go through this door or not go through this door. That's the opening line. In the middle of the poem, she says, by the way, um, if you do not go through this door, fine. You can live a worthy life. You can die bravely, but much will blind you. At what cost, who knows? Those are, those are a few lines from the poem. So you don't have to. You may not be ready, you could say. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I love the way uh, um, James Finley talks about trauma work. He says, you have to, to really d dive into trauma work. It's important to be resourced enough to know when to back off and to give yourself a break when you're beginning to re-enter, because that's what trauma work is like. We're going to re-enter 
we're going to go back to the scene. It depends on what kind of work we're talking about, but it is re-traumatizing. So you have to know when to back off and when to take a break. And maybe the same could be said about shadow work. All right, um, give yourself a break. So you don't have to, but know this, much will blind you and much will evade you. At what cost? Who knows? Says Adrian Rich. So um, now why go through the door? Because that would to recover bits of your shadow is to recover even what Carl Jung would call the self with a capital S, our fully faceted way of being in the world, including soul and a more well-developed ego and some contact and knowledge of our subpersonalities and how they're activated and some knowledge of the shadow and how to begin to integrate such a thing. Because growing out, it's like putting flesh on the bones. Uh, it's possible to move through the world living the largest story we're capable of living. And that requires actually some diving into the shadow. I was just now thinking of a line from the Quran. Um, hold on, let, let me get it. It's written in my journal. One second. Okay, here's a line, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Quran. Do you think you'll enter the garden of bliss without such trials as those that came before you? I love this line because from a psychological and spiritual point of view, there is not another way forward when it comes to growth except through trials. It's always difficult. I know pop spirituality says you can um, pleasantly and enthusiastically and optimistically move to enlightenment, but that is simply not true. It doesn't work that way. No myth, no story, no poem, nothing of any depth, no spiritual practice, at least that I'm aware of, says you, you can come by any other mean, ex means except through trials, the difficulty. So don't think you can avoid it. So if you want to grow up, it's just part of it at a certain point, especially when your egoic programs stop working and your personality and persona and job title and roles that you've been working so hard to live into, that's the first half of life, begin to unravel. Then the trials begin. So don't think you'll enter the garden of bliss without having gone through trials like those before us. So just it's just the way it is. So um, that's one reason why it's important to have a conversation about. And I might, I might add something from Ken Wilber. He says, the greatest contribution of psychology in the 21st century is shadow work. He's summing up a lot. I mean, he's, he's almost using shadow as a kind of metaphor when he says that, but he's saying it is so important that it's the main gift of psychology in the 21st century is shadow, meaning what we don't know about ourselves and learning to turn through various tools and means and mechanisms and ways toward that, to recover that both what's unsavory and what's um, golden in there. In fact, at Animus, one of the things I, I love the way Bill Plotkin talks about the shadow, that the shadow is only what we don't know about ourselves. It's not evil, although it can be dark. So you, you might say that um, there are sinister elements in our shadow. That's the phrase that, that um, Bill Plotkin likes to use, or golden. So both the glory and um, magnanimity of who we are and also the uh, sinister, the dark thoughts 
um, and and even inst- instinctual elements of who we are that we have a hard time accepting and saying, we'd rather say, that's not me. The one thing I know about myself is that that's not me, both sinister and golden. And that's, a, that's actually a pretty good um, clue in phrase. The one thing I know about myself is I'm not. All right, <laughs> then we're getting pretty close. So um, let me add just a, f- a few other elements here. So, um, and I, th- much of the podcast, because again, this is a little podcast on the shadow. I'm talking about the personal shadow here, but there is such a thing as the collective shadow. And those are elements culturally that are unsavory and are repressed and have gone underground. And if the culture were sort of asked, if you could do such a thing, do you have these qualities? They would flatly deny, no, we do not. The one thing we know about ourselves is we are not uh, racist or we are not you know, start filling in the blank culturally and and all kinds of things then exist in the cultural shadow. And maybe there's a collusion between my personal shadow and the and the cultural shadows. If the culture it says definitely there's not a racist bone in my body, and I also think there's not a racist bone in my body, um, then the collective shadow and the personal shadow are colluding a bit. Because why? It's unsafe if this element of who I am were to come out of hiding. So just like a, a, a comment about, I'm just making a comment about such a thing exists as the collective shadow. And of course, um, America has a shadow, has a shadow element. Maybe you could even say the Western world has shadow elements, especially in its um, certainty, in its um, scientific rationalism. We know, we have the evidence, um, we're right, we're convinced. Um, our way of being is actually the healthiest way of being in the end, really the only way of being that's worth its salt. And with that kind of attitude, you better believe all kinds of things are going into the collective shadow, stuff we don't want to face or admit. Um, okay, maybe that's all I want to say about the collective shadow right this second. Um all right, let, let me tell a personal story. And then we'll dive into projections. And after that, maybe we'll talk about ways of beginning to track some of this stuff down, sort of tools and practices. <clears throat> At least that's where I'd like to end. Okay, so a personal story. So when I um, worked at a church, there was someone that I worked with a colleague that in, in which I had a strong charge and that's going to be important later on. I'll explain why, but a strong charge. In other words, when uh, he walked into the room, he activated in me a kind of charge. And in this case, it was a negative charge. And I didn't notice this. Because you don't notice, really, unless you're really conscious and enlightened, which I'm not, that you're being activated um, or that a complex or subpersonality or we might say triggered or hooked. I think most people, they misuse the word trigger because they often know. They'll say, oh, I'm triggered around this. But um, triggering is, I think, re- I was going to say real triggering. I don't know if I can make that argument, but but triggering is far more subtle than that. You don't recognize that you've been activated or, quote, triggered. And 
that's what it was like when he would walk into the room. I would, I was uh, activated, triggered, um, strong charge, strong negative charge. And this went on for some time before I ever became aware that it was happening. And in fact, I began to complain about this person behind uh, closed doors. When so-and-so, um, only to certain people, of course, uh, like safe enough people that, I don't know if you've ever worked for a church and been in leadership, or this is probably true in any organization, period, especially if you're like at the top of the organization like I was, um, you have the meeting and then you have the meeting after the meeting with the people that you like to talk with, that maybe you're more friends with or um, that, you're, that you process. Uh, and sometimes there's a meeting after that meeting with one person. So it's like the layers of, of, of dishonesty are deep, I suppose, um, as to what's really going on. But anyway, um, in the meeting after the meeting, I found myself complaining about this person and making accusations. And, um, and I remember saying things like, well, I just feel like he's in one room, he's one way in a meeting. And then in another room, he's, he says something different. And I can't, I can't stand that when people do that. Now, did I go to this person? No, of course not. Um, did I ask them if this was what was going on? No. Um, but what's interesting is that I couldn't stop the emotional hook. And it kept happening again and again. And um, when I first was introduced to the shadow, I did a an, an, uh, practice. And the practice, which is something I'll suggest at the end, um, list someone that with whom you have a strong charge, but that you're not related. I was like, oh, I've got that easy, this guy at work. Okay. Um, the next element of the exercise was something like, now, write out clearly everything you either like or don't like about this person, depending on if it was a golden or sinister charge um, or a negative or um, positive charge, that kind of thing. Negative positive is probably the right way to put it. So mine was a negative charge. So I listened out. It was very easy. He's one way in one room and a different way in another. So therefore what? Therefore, um, he's not authentic. He's not authentic. He doesn't show up. We don't know who the, this real, we don't know who the real person is. How can anyone do this? And, and I was hundred percent convinced that this was in fact the case with this person. And slowly, but surely through the course of this exercise and through really my own turning toward this, uh, because it was unwarranted. That's what I would say also about the charge. If you were to ask anyone I worked with anything about this person, they would say virtually the opposite of what I said. Very authentic, genuine, um, tells you the truth, is kind and compassionate. So why was I freaking out every time this person came into the room? Freaking out in a sophisticated sort of working freaking out. Work life uh, sort of freak out, which is trying to remain cool, but also internally being hooked. Um, only over time, I think, as I let this mull around for a while and I were really chewing on this. What is going on? And, and I begin to feel flashes of really shame and embarrassment. And I started to get closer. All right, something is going on here and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with this person. And 
it hit me almost like um, like a lightning bolt at first. And I realized, wait a second. I am doing the same thing that I am complaining that he is doing. And I could not see it, which is I would have a meeting. And then in the meeting after the meeting, I would be a different person in that meeting than in the meeting that he was in. I mean, it seems like obvious. You, you would say, how can you not notice that? That is the definition of a shadow. I didn't know it was there. I didn't know that the very thing I was accusing him of, inauthenticity, in meetings, was the very thing I was doing, participating in, in, a, in a very obviously doing. In fact, if you would have asked other people, they would have said, yeah, that's what you're doing, Kent. You're... You're talking this way in this meeting, but then afterwards you're talking this way. And I think this is where, at least for me, this gets even even deeper into, into shadow-oriented stuff because it was a microcosm of my entire life at that point. I was having a hard time being authentic. I didn't even know what authenticity was. And I was working in a church environment, which was not the right fit for me. And it was taking me a long time to admit that, realize that, look at that, and then eventually have the courage to leave. So this person became, and here's where projection comes in. I'll talk about projection in a minute. I projected onto him my own inauthenticity and I couldn't see it. And if you would have accused me of it, you are not being authentic. Not only what I have said to you at the time, and I swear this is the case, that I'm actually totally authentic. I would have even followed that up by saying, the one thing I know about myself is that I'm authentic. This is the thing I pride myself in, my own authenticity. I just show up as I am and which is embarrassing to admit. And I think that's when you you start, that's another clue, even shame, um, a violation of, of my values and my, that, that's what shame is. Your values in some way have been violated and or embarrassment might be a lighter way of putting it. Yeah, because my value of authenticity, I was violating, I was doing it in an ongoing way and putting that on somebody else. That is a personal example of shadow. And when I saw that, it's not as if the shadow completely went away and I just became a totally authentic person. Actually, I realized, whoa, um, I've got some work to do. I have to begin a relationship with my own authenticity if I want this uh, shadow projection to wane. And as soon as I started, and I, I didn't do this easily, but as soon as I started walking toward this reality, I'm going to try to be the same person in every room I'm in. And I actually, my therapist helped me out with this quite a bit because I always had a story. If I show up as authentic Kent and say what I really think, I'll be rejected and not liked or misunderstood worse. And he said, how do you know? (laughs) Why don't you find out? And slowly but surely, I started taking very, very, very small baby steps, small bites, and trying to show up as an authentic Kent, no matter what the room was like. And as soon as I started doing that, the projection waned, or I should say the emotional charge waned. And by the way, I don't know 
I mean, we'd have to ask this person if there was any truth to the to the projection. I mean, maybe it was true that that he was being inauthentic, but that's not the point. The point is I'm activated and I have a strong emotional charge and my shadow is, I suppose, activated and defending or some part of my persona is defending the emergence of the shadow at all cost. And as long as I can put it on somebody else, I don't have to face it in me. And you can go through, here's the sad part, you can go through an entire lifetime of putting onto somebody else something that you're unwilling to face. You can die being convinced of your illusions. You can lay down on your deathbed and say, I'm so glad I'm right in my illusions and that so-and-so is the problem. And in fact, many people die that way. But they live, I don't know, that's a small life. That's a life of quiet desperation. And that's not a life of authenticity and depth and nuance and humility. That's a life of being convinced I'm in the right. And, and by the way, we live in a great time, I think, to, to see public examples of shadow. I mean, Trump is a great example. And you know this, even if you're a Trump fan, you can see that he puts on to other people what he can't face. It's just plain and it's like obvious when he calls like Ted Cruz, lying Ted, lying Ted. Well, what an easy, um, what, what an easy person to project onto. What a, what a simple way of not having to face the fact that he lies. I'll just call someone else a liar. And he does that all the time. Um, and, and just to make things fair here, fair and balanced as hints and pod, hints and guesses is fair and balanced. Um, Let's take uh, Clinton. I think a, a good example of, of, I think, her shadow leaking out sideways was um, this deplorable phrase. I mean, who, what politician in their right mind would admit that they think some people in this country are deplorable? They would say, no, I'm, I'm running to, to serve all people, and I can see the beauty and good in all people, and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, it just leaked out sideways, and someone caught her, and it probably surprised her. And I bet if you accused her of actually thinking there are some deplorable people— um, or that the deplorables are electing Trump, she might even deny it and believe that she doesn't actually think that. And that was just a slip of the tongue, and that's not really what she meant. And, and then the ego and the persona are working overtime to try to keep that stuff contained. Stay underground where you should. Don't leak out sideways. Same with Trump. And I, I, I mean, my guess is if you were to say Trump, seriously, man, heart to heart here, um, why do you lie? Like, it just seems unnecessary. He might say, especially if it's a shadow, element. The one thing I know about myself is I'm not a liar. I mean, it's just, I'm not lying. That That's the thing I'm not doing. <laughs> Do you see what I mean about the way shadow works? Okay. I, I hope you get um, what I'm saying so far. I, I'm, I'm sure you probably do. Let's talk about projections because it's like another one of those words. Um, and maybe I should say this before I talk about projections, shadow also gets thrown around out there. And most of the time when people say that was my shadow, they just mean stuff they don't like about themselves that they're trying to keep down. That's not the same thing. <laughs> Remember, it's what you don't know about yourself, at least initially. It's not like, oh, well, I have a gambling problem and I just don't want to admit it. And I'm going to tell people I don't. That's not really, um, that's not really shadow. Okay, uh, two projections. Now, again, it's one of those words that people throw out a lot. Oh, you're, I even hear it in uh, sort of in marital spats. 
um, well, you're projecting. Um, or, or people they don't like, they'll say they're projecting. And it's not that that's totally false, but it's sort of making its way into the common parlance. And I don't always know what people mean by that. And and if it if really projection is at work or if it's not at work. So let's go straight to um, Carl Jung here. And here's what he says. Here's his definition of, of uh, projection. Projections, but this is really a, a definition of how they work. Projections change the world into the replica of one's own unknown face. God, that's good. Projections change the world into the replica of one's own unknown face. So, you know, to pick on Trump, um, what's happening with this Lion Ted business? Well, Lion Ted is the face, um, is the projection that it's, and Trump is changing the world into a replica of something he can't look at. So as long as I can see Lion Ted as the face of dishonesty. I don't have to face it in me. In fact, I don't even know it's there. It's definitely, definitely his fault. And the world would be better if he changed his ways. That's where we're starting to get close to projections. Now, um, I want to add something else. Projections are not bad. That's kind of the way they're used in modern parlance. Oh, so-and-so's projecting. Um, oh, my wife, she she's projecting blah, 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 or um, whatever. They're not bad, actually. Mary Louise von Franz, this is France, uh, This is um, Jung's, I almost said St. Francis. Um, this is one of Jung's students and then uh, colleagues, eventually, and sort of helped carry the mantle of uh, Jungian depth psychology forward, uh, Louise von Franz did. She said, thank God for projections. Because how else are these unknown parts of ourselves supposed to come forward? They have to first be projected onto the other for us to recognize them in ourselves. So projections are simply gifts. They are gifts. Like Lion Ted is a gift to Trump. If he could own the projection that actually the thing I'm accusing him of is what I do. Start going across the board both sinister and golden projections, mulling that over in your mind. First, I put it onto someone else so I can see it and name it and call it something so that possibly in my growing up, I might own some of that back and say, you know what? I don't want, um, I'm not going to let my colleague carry around this uh, projection of inauthenticity. I don't want him to carry it around. I don't want to, uh, to spend the rest of my life looking back and saying, one time I worked with this guy who was so inauthentic, blah, 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 blah. No, I don't. I want to own that and say, actually, that's my issue. And I want to grow into my own authenticity so I don't spend the rest of my life projecting inauthenticity on everybody else because that's exactly the way it happens. As soon as um, the emotional charge wanes from one person or he just leaves or I quit and I go somewhere else, guess what? I'm just going to find another version of that somewhere else. The projection simply moves to someone else or something else. It could could be something a little more abstract, especially with um, we're talking about the collective unconscious and, and the way it projects. So it can be abstract, um, you know, an ideology, a group, um, the devil, um, 
demons, you know, the, you can, there can be all, all kinds of things on which we place our projections because we don't want to own them other than just the supercharged um, person we might know. So that's a, um, a bit, at least a, a hint and a guess toward defining what a projection is. So, um, and, and projections, like I said, are great gifts. They start to come out of hiding. And anyone who's been in a long-term relationship and that relationship has, um, has graduated from the early stage, and the early stage is what we could just call um, hype, a stage of hyper-projections. This person is the best thing ever. Um, they're going to save me, fix me, love me, not leave me. Um, you might have even married this person. They promised they would um, bind up all my wounds and make me feel whole and complete me. And I'm, I was incomplete until I met them. And um, and then you collude in that. And then the other way around, the other person thinks the same list of things. This person can keep me safe. I mean, they might be slightly different lists, of course, but they're going to keep me safe, never abandon me, always listen. Um, they're, they are the only ones that can truly understand me. That's hyper uh, projection. <laughs> to be kind of straightforward. and um, But anyone who's sort of graduated into the next phase or phases of relationship, those projections begin to dissolve. And usually you hear things like, this is not the person I married. Um, this is not the person that I, that I, this is not what I signed up for. This is not, you've changed. That That's my, how initially come out. But again, the opportunities um, to begin to recognize these projections. Okay, I'm projecting onto my spouse um, that she's actually going to be my parent and take care of me and be responsible and never leave me, unlike my parent. This is all happening in the basement of our consciousness. We don't know this is happening. And and as the projection cr- uh, wanes um, or something cracks it, we begin to realize, hmm, Either I'm going to let I'm going to have this person carry the mantle of being my parent, or I'm going to own it back and say something like, "I need to parent myself. It's time for me to grow up." Anyway, you you get what I'm saying, and and projections can be pretty easy to work with. I mean, just on a surface level, I don't you don't need really a therapist, although maybe you need one. Um, you don't really need a special book. You can just start to ask very simple questions. What do I put on my spouse? What do I assume? Um, there. What are my What are my expectations here? And I assume. What roles do I assume they have to fulfill for me to be happy and whole? Um, and even be curious about your friends and and your work life. Is there anything that I might have an unrealistic level of expectation around. I need you to fill in the blank. Um, I had some, had someone, uh, a friend of mine complaining about a boss that, that she had. And she said, um, they don't know how to lead me. I thought that was an interesting way to phrase something. So you, Here's a bit of my interpretation. Of course, we'd have to really get into it in a one-on-one conversation, and she would have to do the work, so I might be projecting here. <laughs> um, but something like this could have could have been happening. Um, 
I need you to lead me because I don't know how to lead myself. And I have to be in an environment where I have to be led in a certain way for me to be successful. When probably what needs to happen is I need to, or she needs to, grow into the, her own capacities to lead. And instead of putting that on somebody else, and to lead what? Well, starting with herself. It's like Mary Oliver, at the end of her poem, The, the Journey, um, you turn toward the only life. What does she say? Hold on. Let me, let me just get it out. Okay. At the end of, uh, her poem, the journey, she's talking about, um, there's a voice that you slowly recognize as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. That's um, a poetic way, or one way of, of, of interpreting or, or wrestling with this poem, is to think, yeah, that's what happens when you begin to, begin to drop your projections and say, other people aren't going to save me, or the reverse, I'm going to spend my rest of my life saving other people, and you start turning toward the inner landscape. Determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save, which she just leaves right there. And the implication, I think, being your own. Only you can own this stuff. And that's what happens when you begin to recover this deeper, truer voice in the world that she's hinting at in this poem. And as you begin to leave the other voices behind, which is the beginning of the poem. Anyway, read the poem, The Journey, if you want uh uh, if you haven't before, definitely do. Okay, quick time out here. In case you think this is um, just sort of contemporary psychology that we're talking about here, after all, words like shadow and projection and, you know, those are contemporary uh, psychological terms. Even the term new age was coined by Jung. Uh, although people obviously mean something slightly different about it than, than I think his original intention. But I think I'd like to, at the very least, say, I'm not making this up. This is in the great spiritual traditions. This is part of what um, the great uh, spiritual teachers have always taught, that the problem is within. I mean, just think about Jesus, for example. He has that famous line, why do you worry about the speck of dust in your brother or sister's eye? Meanwhile, you have a plank or a log in your own eye. That is the same exact thing. That's the invitation to do some internal work because the plank that you're carrying around, the log that's embedded in your own eye means you cannot see the world clearly. You cannot see to remove the speck of dust in someone else's eye. Or think about Jesus. He, he gets into this argument with the Pharisees after healing a blind person, which again is interesting. And the Pharisees at one point say, uh, uh, Jesus, um, you're offending us. Are you saying that we're blind too? And Jesus says, if you claim to see, you're already blind. In other words, if you claim to see the world 
with a kind of certainty. I know what your problem is. You're already blind. So this is that uh, humiliating um, invitation to look within, to, to do, I guess, what we would call now inner work. In, in the context of, of the shadow, to say, don't assume that the way you see the world, what you've already decided about your spouse and your mother and your brother-in-law and your colleague and your boss is 100% about them. Assume, <laughs> I was going to say, assume you have a speck of dust in your eye. Actually, Jesus is saying, assume you have a plank in your eye. Assume you have a giant log that is um, coloring the entire landscape. If you can start with that assumption, I think it leads you to a kind of openness and wonder about the way I see the world. In other words, before Jung, there were there was Jesus and Buddha and the Axial Age and the Greek philosophers and Muhammad and um, the Hindu tradition. Who, who were saying similar kinds of things, who were beginning, I think, amazingly to turn attention to the individual. And that is so radical. One of the things that Carl Jung notes that is that in early stage consciousness, there was very little differentiation between me and other. There was a blending. That's animism. That's um, magical um, thinking. That, that's sort of uh, uh, the way Ken Wilber puts, puts that face. Um, but very slowly, something like the dawning of, of the individual begins to emerge in human consciousness. And we find ourselves being challenged at that time to take greater personal responsibility for the way the world is, rather than just blaming the other. Um, like, it's so funny, like, in the very opening lines of Genesis, after Adam and Eve eat from uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing Adam does is blame, saying it's someone else's fault. The woman made me do it. And actually, he blames God. He says, the woman that you made um, is the problem. And already the, the book of Genesis and this story is emerging in this same axial age, in this same emergence of greater uh, responsibility on the human individual. And this is an, a, an absolute revolution in consciousness. And anyway, my main point is that the great spiritual traditions are teaching something like, um, before fancy words like shadow and projection, they were saying, you have a human shadow. <laughs> they, were, they were saying, you can't see the way you see. And the first invitation is, is to turn the gaze within before you automatically assume that the other or the king or, uh, or even religion is the problem. How about some self-examination? That's what we see, I think, with this, these little teachings from Jesus. So what's my main point? I'm not making this up. Um, Carl Jung's not making this up. He's tapping into, I think, the great tradition in the first place. So, I think I've said enough about projection. Again, a little podcast on the shadow. Maybe it's time to talk about um, golden and sinister projections. 
um, or golden and sinister shadow bits, and then we'll talk about some potential exercises at the end that you can take or leave. All right, so um, keep in mind that I've sort of already been alluding to this, that there can be sinister elements of one's projection or shadow and, and also golden. And sometimes it's harder to detect the golden elements for some people, um, or sometimes it's harder to detect the sinister. I have a harder time with the sinister. I can get a little closer to the golden ones, um, but for some people it's reversed. But know that you, you definitely have both. In other words, there are elements of yourself, your own glory, the glory of who you are that you're not living into, that you're projecting onto other people. Um, and you, if accused, you would say, there's no way I could do anything like that. Um, there's no way I could be like so-and-so. Golden projection. Um, sinister is the opposite, of course. Um, the, the people that really, really deeply get under your skin. Um, and they could be people living or dead. They could be people you work with. They could even be Hollywood stars or politicians. I think Trump is a big... Um, a giant projection screen for many, 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 many people, especially on the left. There's no way I would do anything like him. There's no way I would lie. Um, there's not a lying bone in my body. If I were there, I would just be completely truthful and honest and and so forth and so on. So he becomes a place to put um, our own unsavory bits, which is actually, we might be way more manipulative and self-serving and egocentric and we're willing to use half-truths and complete falsehoods to, to maintain this egoic persona. That's probably, if, if Trump is a super big charge for you, you, there might be something going on along those lines. Some sinister, more sinister element that you've yet to own, that you've yet to look at. Actually, I'm like this. Um, and ugh, that's gross. So I'd rather just keep it out there. So just keep in mind that they, they work both ways because in the exercise I want to invite you into here, here at the end, um, you can go in either direction. Um, okay, let's talk about resources and then a potential exercise. So here, here are a list of things that I have found helpful. I could easily put this... Um, this podcast in my series that I made a little while ago, Stuff That Helps. So this could be Stuff That Helps, the, the shadow or shadow work. And here are some resources. I already mentioned a little book on the human shadow by Robert Bly. Excellent. Uh, dive into um, the shadow, both psych, psych, psychologically and using literary references and, and mythic language. Robert Bly is a beast when it comes to that stuff. Um, you can also go straight to Jung if you want to, um, particularly in his um, article or uh, book called Eon, The Phenomenology of the Self. That's where he has a section on the shadow and also on projections. And um, But that's a great resource. You can easily find that online. You don't have to buy this stuff. Um, I also highly recommend Bill Plotkin's book, Wild Mind. And... Uh, it in the second half of the book, in the section on the subpersonalities, there's a whole section on the shadow. And, and I'm going to give you a version of an exercise from that book. And he has got many more. If, you're, if you begin to be curious about this and want to, want to do some work on your own, um, I recommend Wild Mind as a starting place. Uh, another great resource is, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, uh, Sounds True 
with Tammy Simon. She did one a few, I think it was last year actually, um, on The Shadow, where she interviewed um, Carolyn Meese, Carolyn Meese, and Andrew Harvey, and she did it because they were she was promoting something. And which was a course. So they have a shadow course. They call themselves shadow busters, which is interesting, but very much rooted in much of what I just said uh, along the same lines. So um, I would check that out. And if you don't want to do the shadow course, no problem. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it costs money. I don't know what it costs. The podcast is free. So you can at least get, you can scratch the surface where she interviews uh, Carolyn and Andrew on um, what they mean by shadow and how to begin to work with it, and so forth. So those are my um, recommendations, which, which leads me to a couple exercises. So here's, here's an exercise from, um, two exercises from Wild Mind. So the first would be just, let's have a conversation for, um, like if you think about the psyche as a landscape, terrain, and let's say some of the terrain in the landscape is shadow bits and pieces. So one question you might want to ask yourself is, how do I wander closer over to this terrain without making big statements of, I'm going to find my shadow and I'm going to destroy it, or I'm going to fix it, or just how do I wander a little closer to that territory? So here are some examples of things that, that can get you a little closer to shadow material. So pay attention to dream characters who there's a really strong charge in them, both positive or negative. Um, even nightmares. I know people don't, most people, unless you're kind of really into dream work like me, like, not like nightmares. No one loves to have a nightmare. Um, but the dream characters in the nightmare, what qualities do they have? And could you list those? And what are you absolutely sure they embody? And um, if you held them in front of you in your imagination, could you imagine how they feel about the world? This is beginning to explore uh, dream characters that can um, come disguised as uh, shadow elements. Um, another one along the same lines is people in your day world that have a super strong emotional charge or super strong uh, reaction that's unwarranted, like like instantly falling in love or like just being unable to speak in someone's presence is more golden or the opposite, sinister. When they walk in the room, I don't know what it is about them. My skin crawls. Um, I could never say this to them, but that kind of thing. So just Noting them, putting them down in your journal. I notice this. I notice I have a strong charge about this person. I wonder what that's about. What qualities do I think they have? Like, what is it that I don't like about them? Or what is it that I like about them? Just listing those out. Um, another, you know, maybe this gets a little more dangerous, but uh, noticing some of the, the qualities that you put on your romantic partner that are a bit over the top. Um, and just starting to get curious, like, really, really? Um, they are the greatest blah, 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 blah. Really? Um, like idealization in some way. That seems like, like, and you'd be convinced of this. You're absolutely sure they embody these things. Just maybe listing some of those, those things out. Um, another way is to explore this through myth, literature, film, books, whatever. Um, and that's villains or heroes. Like maybe you have an unnecessary, or not unnecessary, totally necessary, but almost unwarranted or hard to justify attraction to a particular villain or a particular hero. Those are other ways of just starting to roam around in the terrain 
that is um, shadow-oriented. Um, and maybe the final one I might add is, can you list any episodes where you you might have done or said something that is completely out of character? And then you you said something like, I don't know what came over me. I'll never do this again. Um, this is not me. Or it felt like you were possessed by something. Just making a note of that. Hmm, I wonder what that is about. Um, something along those lines. That, that, you know, that we can probably think of other people that have acted super out of character, but can you turn um, your attention toward toward yourself in that respect? So here's the shadow exercise that um, comes from Plotkin's book. So I'm I'm giving you something if you want further detail, because I'm not going to give you the entire thing, but just as to scratch the surface and invite you into a conversation, should you feel kind of attracted to this or repulsed, one of the two. Um, so first of all, uh, go to a, a wild place, semi-wild place, or a private place at the very least, somewhere where you're not going to be disturbed. And identify a person in your life that either you have a super strong admiration or attraction to, or the opposite, a super negative uh, reaction. And, I, and I just identify that person and bring that person to mind. And, and when I've done this in the past, I'll even bring them up in my imagination and, or, or redo a scene that happened recently. Or if I don't know them personally, that's where the imagination is most helpful. And it's almost like um, getting close to them, like almost walking walking nearer to them. What's happening in me? What do I see about them? That sort of stuff. And then identifying, I would just do two or three um, traits or characteristics that you admire about this person or hate about this person. So these are positive or negative, depends on what the charge is. And um, try to get as clear as possible. Until you're able to say something like, for sure, I know, this person bothers me because of fill in the blank. Or what I absolutely admire and love about this person is their ability to. And just don't think it has anything to do with you. Keep it about them. That's the way to to do this exercise honestly. Try to keep it about them. And then write it out. And then after that, describe your emotions. Or maybe you'd, if you're if you're a little more fluid with your emotions, you might notice them arising anyway as you begin to bring this person to mind. But note your emotions and make them simple. Like, I'm mad or I'm happy or I'm scared or I'm hurt or I'm angry or I'm ashamed or whatever. Just describe the emotions that you are feeling when, you bring, when you're bringing this person to mind. Or when I'm with this person, I feel. That's another great question. Beginning to explore the uh, emotional terrain. And now here's where things get tricky. Um, the next part of the exercise, maybe you could list out at this point resources that this person has that you don't. So I did this, I did a golden projection a a couple of years ago with someone and, um, I was actually envious. That was the emotion that she had access to anger and, and Part of me was like, I just wanted to be around her because she had such an ease with her anger, particularly around around her father and 
around injustices, something like that. And, um, and the, the quality was something like she's able to access anger and express it and let it move through her. And she has this amazing quality to almost in a way, let the beauty of anger work on her and through her. I was convinced of this is the case. And, and as, as I started to list it as a, as a resource, this person has anger as a resource. I started to, at that point, recognize maybe this is a projection. Um, maybe this is a resource that I don't have. And it turns out this was definitely one of the few emotions that was completely off limits to me as a kid. The one thing I couldn't be was angry. And I would say of my my dad in particular, he's not angry. He's never angry, which of course cannot be true. And people would have said of him, he's not angry. And if anger came up in our family, it had to be completely and immediately, I'm sorry, that'll never happen again. And we don't want to talk about it. And not only do you have to say, I'm sorry, but someone has to immediately say back to you, you're forgiven and away it went. And so, you know, in the family... In my family of origin, it was completely unsafe for me to be angry. And the way to achieve, I think, um, love and acceptance is to not be angry. And if you would have stopped me in high school and said, are you angry? I'd be like, no way, man. There's not an angry bone in my body. I even had a sticker on my Ford Ranger, my 1989 Ford Ranger. Are you kind? You know, along with my Grateful Dead stickers. Like, dude, man, just, yeah, dude, just like anger is so poisonous, you know, like. I'm so glad I'm not like those other people that are just like so possessed by their anger. It's just all about love and and beauty and and kindness, man, and um, you know that kind of thing. And so, what was happening? I would I think is a bit of my own anger was in the shadow, and I was very happy uh, being near this friend of mine because she had such capacity to let that fire just just run straight through her. And it didn't seem to be destructive. I mean, in a way it seemed to serve the good. And that's the thing I, I think was the resource. So after you've done these things, you might ask yourself this question. Do I want this person to continue to carry this resource, um, this quality, this way of being so that I don't have to? And, and if you're able to recognize it as a projection, whether golden or sinister. Mm. I don't want Trump to carry my dishonesty for me anymore. I don't want my friend to carry anger so I don't have to feel my own anymore. And that is the beginning. And I want to emphasize the beginning of beginning to take that projection back and say, how can I, how can I begin to own some of this? And, and in my case, I just asked my friend, you know, how do, how do you access this anger? Did you have any practice? I'm not, now we're friends, so I can ask that, and you can't do that of Trump. But, um, you know, it, what's it like to be you? How did you come to such ease with this? Could be one way of doing it. Or, or even more simply, um, what can I do to my life, in my life, to feel, first of all, my own anger? Um, or be, become conscious of my own lies, or if these are golden, golden projection, projections, my own creativity. The one thing I know about myself is I could never be an interior designer like so-and-so. And then begin, begin to say, what? are there ways that I can own my own space? 
That's not the same as resolving the shadow. That's, I think, an example of taking a small bite. Here's a small bite. Um, it's, it's an appetizer. And see how that might affect the charge itself. See if you might look back at this person in your imagination and see them slightly differently. This person that you're so convinced is a god or so convinced is the devil. Just look at that projection again. So that's the exercise. Um, and I'm not going to go through it again. You can rewind it or you can get, you can get Plotkin's book here. Um, what, what might I like to say in, in con conclusion here? I, I think I'd like to say this. Don't take yourself too seriously. Working with shadow can sound ominous, uh, dark, fearful, serious. But I think it's important to balance out that impulse with some levity. You know, don't take yourself so seriously, man. Everybody has shadow material. From Clinton to Trump to Obama, um, think about the whole array of Hollywood stars, a lot of what's going on with both our love affair and our disdain. I mean, because that can turn on a dime is because of the same shadow mechanism at work here. Um, just relax. Uh, so you fell in love with someone and you've been projecting onto them, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? You know, just a little bit of, um, uh, you know, like in like in uh, what's with <laughs> the karate kid, you know, you know, teach me, teach me how to be a, a master, you know, karate person. And he says, go wash, wash the car, you know, wax on, wax off, um, go build a fence. That's much more like what this, all right, don't take yourself so seriously. Just it's work. Um, but just, just know that it's work. And I think a little bit of levity and humor is needed. Listen to a comedian, you know, in the middle of all this. Listen to your favorite comedian and remind yourself humanity uh, is is a bit of a mess. Like again, here's a line from from Carl Jung. He says, um, "Part of the dilemma of the modern person is that we used to put everything on the political enemy and the reprobate. That's the word he uses. Um, and now we must we must begin to turn our attention toward our own house, and we must get our own house." set to rights first. That's the line from you. So that's the invitation. May you in your own way set your own house to rights first um, with seriousness and levity, I think, holding hands. If you made it this far, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. And a special thanks to my patrons who are supporting me through Patreon. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson, or the link is also on my website, kentdobson.com. Seriously, your your support means a ton. And um and you can support this podcast in other ways. Share it with your friends. It's already growing a little bit, and I'd love to see it continue to do so. Um there are more and more, I believe, there are people out there who are looking for the depth dimension of things. And not that my podcast is the answer to that, but I'm trying to contribute to the ongoing and important conversation around spirituality and faith and doubt and um, religion and God and the psyche and nature and the human soul. So share it with people who, who you think um, might benefit and might 
might in their own way join the unfolding and exciting conversation about uh, the shifting sands of spirituality in the 21st century. So yeah, that's all I got for you today. Again, thanks for listening. Peace.